This morning, our scripture reading is found in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. Well, good morning again. Let's pray as we turn to God's word now together. Lord, we thank you for this summer in the book of Philippians. Thank you for your word, which is living and active and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, speak to us this morning from your glorious word. Help us to be ready to listen, ready to respond, ready to partner with other brothers and sisters in the gospel in the making known of Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Most great accomplishments, most great inventions, discoveries, voyages, go forward on the backs of individuals or groups who choose to partner with others in a significant way. Isn't that true? Everyone knows, uh, you probably learned in elementary school, that Christopher Columbus went forward with his expedition after receiving support from Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain after he was turned down by Portugal. Well, this partnership, this reliance on partners, is often true of gospel work as well. We actually saw a picture of this just last Sunday evening in our service as we heard reports from our World Impact teams that are returning from their summer trips. Those students, high school students, almost 70 of them this summer, 
went out from this place, at least in part, because many of you chose to partner with them, to support them uh, with prayer, with finances, so that they could go and share the love of Jesus with others around the world this summer. And we actually just saw another picture of it this morning as we as a church committed to partner with Chris and Dana as they go to share the gospel in India. Well, the church at Philippi was a church that seemed to get this. They were a group of people who refused to stay on the sidelines as the message of the salvation in Jesus went forth through Paul's ministry and around the world. This was a church that got partnership. In our passage today, I actually believe that we found our way to the theme of this entire book, and it's this, partnership in the gospel. That's what the book of Philippians is ultimately all about. It's a theme that's supported and bolstered by a deep gospel joy. That's why the sermon series is titled Joy. But the book's real melodic line, the note that Paul keeps on sounding all the way through the epistle, is partnership, sharing with one another in the gospel. Now just look back with me to a couple key passages on this idea. If you'll get your fingers ready, we're going to just turn a few times. Turn back to chapter 1, Philippians 1, verse 5, as Paul began this letter to the Philippians. He says that he thanks God and all of his remembrance of them, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's how Paul begins this letter. Then look a few verses ahead to verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This partnership language, side by side. Paul later then, in chapter 2, gives the Philippians examples of two men who have served Jesus well, men whom he holds out for the Philippians as worthy examples to emulate, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what is it about these men that makes Paul value them and hold them out as examples to the church in Philippi? Well, look at what Paul says of Timothy in chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Here's how he describes him. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He has partnered with me in the gospel. Then he says this about Epaphroditus, just a few verses down, verse 25 of chapter 2. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Again, partnership language. It is this partnership in the gospel that Paul values about these men that makes him hold them up as examples for the believers in Philippi. And then finally, in what is really a kind of climax in the letter, the passage that Pastor Garrett preached through last week, Paul actually calls out by name two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who are not getting along, who are at odds with one another. Look at chapter 4. Verses 2 to 3. What is the basis? What is the basis for unity? As Paul makes an appeal to these women. Look at 2 to 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women 
who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Again, their basis, the basis of his call for unity to these women is their partnership in the gospel. Their history of serving side by side for Jesus. So when we open up our passage in Philippians today and find these words in verse 15, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, we find that Paul is hitting on the same theme, really the major theme that he's been focusing on for four chapters already. Gospel partnership. Sharing together in the cause of Jesus. Linking arms with joy for the sake of the good news of Jesus in this world. So, what does that partnership look like for Paul and for the Philippian church? We'll take just a moment to get clear on what is going on in this context. So, three quick things on the historical context of this passage, this letter. First of all, number one, this passage today introduces us to the specific historical occasion for this letter. Look down with me a few verses into our passage, verse 18. Here's what Paul says there. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So, Epaphroditus has just returned from visiting Paul, who's in prison in Rome. I think, since Paul calls him the messenger to the Philippians, that he's probably returning to Philippi, his home church, carrying this very letter of Philippians to them. But what was he doing in Rome? He was bringing a gift, we find in 18. Bringing a gift from the Philippian church to Paul in prison. He was the conduit of their support for Paul. Number two, we need to understand that this is not the first time the Philippians have given to Paul. They have been faithful, long-time supporters of his gospel ministry. Look with me at verses 15 to 16. 15 to 16. Paul says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The Philippian church has risen above all the other churches in the area to support Paul. They've made multiple concerted efforts to give support to him as he planted churches. You don't need to turn here, but just listen to how Paul describes their generosity in 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. Here's what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they, give, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, it doesn't mention Philippi specifically, but it's almost certain that Paul has them in mind here. Their sacrificial sharing in Paul's ministry through specifically their financial generosity has been a steady pattern 
for the believers in this body. Number three, we need to understand that this most recent gift, the one described in our passage this morning, brought by Epaphroditus to Paul, is a different kind of help than before. It's a different kind of gift. The Philippians had supported Paul's gospel preaching and his church planting, but now he's in prison in Rome. So those efforts have ceased. Now, for prisoners during this time period, food, clothing, and other necessities were provided only by the kindness of family and friends. So if you didn't have family or friends and you went to prison in Rome, you were in big trouble. You might not eat. So when the Philippians send a gift to Paul in prison, they are taking responsibility as his spiritual family to sustain him while he's there. They probably sent money, which would have been used for Paul's daily sustenance and perhaps even his survival during his time in jail. So our historical context is such that we have a significant gift in view here. And specifically, it's a gift of money given from the Philippians to Paul out of a foundation and from a long history of generous support for his ministry for the sake of Jesus Christ. A long-standing partnership. So what exactly is a partnership? And what does this mean for us today? I looked this up just for fun. Here's how the Internal Revenue Service defines a partnership. A partnership is the relationship existing between two or more persons who join to carry on a trade or business. Each person contributes money, property, labor, or skill and expects to share in the profits and losses of the business. It was interesting to me that this definition actually has much overlap with what Paul is talking about here, obviously in very different terms. A partnership is a relationship, and it involves significant sharing. A partnership involves two parties who are joining together intentionally to carry some work forward together. Now, perhaps there are some of you here this morning who have gotten away from this kind of Christian partnership or relationship. Maybe you're a ministry worker. You're, work, you're engaged full-time in some kind of Christian ministry and you're tempted to do it all on your own. Maybe you're in business and you feel sometimes utterly disconnected from global ministry, from evangelism, or from church planting efforts going on around the world. Well, the call today from this passage is a call to partnership to join in relationship with fellow believers in Jesus as you carry his cause forward together in the world. Partnership implies a relationship. Partnership implies sharing. If you have met Jesus, if you know him, if you know the forgiveness that is found in him, if you've met him and known the forgiveness of sin through the blood of his cross, then you are called to this kind of partnership with other believers in Christ. To put it a different way, if you're saved by the gospel, then you are called to share with others in gospel work. That is the call to every Christian. The more that I've looked at this passage this week and and dug into this text, the more I've come to a conviction that this is all about how gospel people both give and receive in a context of partnership. It's about this gospel partnership that Paul has been putting forward through this entire epistle. 
a partnership that necessarily involves two parties who give and receive. And so it's my conviction that this passage has much to say to us right here today in Wheaton about how we both give and receive as gospel people who are in relationship with other gospel people. And so our plan moving forward from here will really be to try to answer two simple questions from this passage. First, how do we receive as gospel people? And second, how do we give as gospel people who live in the context of these kinds of partnerships? So first, how do we receive? How do we receive? Well, first, we receive with thankfulness to people and to God. Look with me at verse 10, verse 10 of our passage. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. We've already discussed this gift that Paul is receiving, but it needs to be said again. Paul is really benefiting from this gift. This is huge for Paul. The Philippian believers are providing for his physical needs, perhaps even directly contributing to his survival while he's in prison. And so it's more than appropriate for Paul to express this great amount of thankfulness to them and to God for this significant gift. Second, we receive out of a spirit of deep contentment. That's how gospel people receive they receive from a spirit of contentment. Look at verses 11 to 13, probably the most well-known portion of this passage. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In our college group Bible studies on Wednesday nights, we often ask the question, what is the surprise in the passage? So as we're reading this through, what's the biggest shocker if we were reading this for the first time? It's that question that often opens up our eyes to a key point that the author is trying to make. Well, in these verses, we found our way to the surprise of the passage. And here it is. Paul says that he's not in need. That's the surprise. Really, Paul? You're in prison. You're actually in great need. You're you're totally dependent on outside supporters even to eat and to stay clothed. Uh, Paul, it seems like you have a lot of need. But no, Paul says, I'm not in need. I'm content. In fact, he says he's learned the secret of being content in every situation. How can he say that? Paul is completely satisfied in Christ. Here is a man who has found in Jesus alone his everything. The Savior of sinners has become to Paul all that he needs for true contentment. One of our college students in in our Bible study this past Wednesday when we were looking at this text together put it like this. It's like if Paul has Jesus, everything else on top of that relationship is just extra. I thought that was put very well. 
But what's so amazing about this is that the extra that comes on top of Jesus for Paul in this passage is actually the thing that contributes to his physical survival. That's the extra that Paul says, I don't need it if I have Jesus. For Paul, Jesus brings contentment. And Jesus plus nothing else brings contentment. I wonder if that's true of us today. Are you content? If someone looked at your life or, or looked into your heart, peered into your heart, would they, say, would they see contentment? We live in a culture, don't we, that's driven by discontent. That's often why we are so tempted to buy stuff, to do more, to get ahead, maybe even to pursue new areas of sin. Discontent. I want to suggest that what Paul is putting forward here is that the only true path to contentment is to find our way to Jesus himself. Because only in finding him as our Savior, our friend, our Lord, our King, will we be able to rest on an unchanging rock that does not go up and down with life's changing circumstances. And we all know that life's circumstances change. Only in him will we be able to be anchored to a fixed spot that doesn't fluctuate. That's the contentment that Paul is talking about. A contentment that is tethered to Jesus Christ, his Savior. It can't get pulled away. It's this kind of contentment, even in the midst of the suffering of prison, that Paul says he can and does achieve through the one who strengthens him. Look again at verse 13. Paul concludes this little aside with this well-known verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is one of a few verses in our passage today that gets often, sadly, ripped out of its proper context. And seeing it today in the body of this passage is in itself, I think, a good argument for working through Scripture in big chunks rather than a verse-for-the-day kind of mentality. What is Paul saying in verse 13 in the context? Is he talking about accomplishment? God will strengthen me to accomplish great things? No. God will strengthen him to endure and to remain content in Jesus Christ no matter what. That is what God's strength is pointed to in this passage. You want God to strengthen you today? Ask him to pour out his marvelous, fabulous, cosmic power to enable you to be fully content in your Savior. God will be delighted to answer that prayer. So how do we receive as gospel people? We do it with thanksgiving and we do it out of contentment. You see, Paul wasn't sitting here in prison pining and waiting desperately for help from the Philippians. He wasn't spiritually or emotionally dependent on their gift. And he certainly didn't lean on it for his contentment. What a word for us today. As we receive as gospel people, as we receive time or money or support or encouragement from others, with what mindset, with what attitude of heart do we receive those things? Do we lean on financial or emotional support in order to gain contentment? Or are we content in Christ alone and therefore receive those gifts gladly as just extra blessings from a loving Father? That's what it was for Paul. That's how we receive as gospel people, content in Christ. 
So then, point two, how do we give? If that's how we receive as gospel people, how do we give? Now, as we said before, the context for this passage is a gift of money from the Philippians to Paul in prison in Rome. So we do need to talk about money a bit here. But the principles about giving as gospel people that emerge from this passage relate to other areas of giving as well. Time, other kinds of resources, energy, relationships. So how do we give in all those areas as gospel people? Well, the first answer to this question actually takes us back to the first four verses of the passage, 10 to 13, which we've been looking at. Paul's discussion of not being in need and being perfectly content in Christ. And here it is, point one. We give knowing that God's gospel work does not depend on us. We give knowing that the work of the gospel is not dependent on us. I think that's part of the reason Paul launches into this little aside in verses 11 to 13 about his contentment. Whether or not the Philippians had the tendency to believe that somehow Paul, God, or the advance of the gospel depended on their generosity, Paul wants to make absolutely sure that they get that those things don't depend on them. He does this mainly by pointing to himself. I'm grateful, he's saying, but I'm not dependent on you. My contentment doesn't hinge on your gift, and neither does the work of God in this world. God doesn't need your money, Philippians, I think Paul is saying. When we give, we must not allow Satan to get a foothold in our hearts and our attitudes, even as we do something good like give. The enemy would love to twist even the good action of generous giving and deceive us into thinking that God's kingdom work is somehow fueled by our sweat or by our effort or by our dollars. No. If God can make a donkey speak, he can get his work done. We give knowing that the growth of the gospel does not depend on us. Number two, we give because we want to partner in the gospel. So, well... Well, God's work, God's gospel work doesn't depend on us. We give because we do want to share in that work. We want to be a part of it. Look at Paul's description of the motivation and the actions of the Philippians in verses 14 to 16. He says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Their giving, Paul says, was about sharing his trouble, but but it was about more than that. It was about getting involved on the ground floor of this exciting gospel work that was beginning to move forward in Macedonia. It was about backing Paul's efforts to plant churches, this work that Paul was doing on the front lines in Asia. It was about more than dollars. This was partnership in the gospel. To put it a slightly different way, money wasn't just money for Paul. This gift from the Philippians wasn't just a gift. It was a partnership in the gospel, a partnering in that work with him, sharing in the ministry of the good news of Jesus Christ. Money is not just money. Time is not just time. There is always an investment in something 
a sharing in some direction with our resources. When we give any kind of resource, it ought to be like this, gospel-driven, shaped by gospel intentionality, purposefully aligning our resources with the growth of the gospel and the advance of Christ's kingdom and the cause of Jesus Christ in our town, in our country, and across the world. Friends, this calls for an expanded view of giving, a greater understanding of what we're doing when we put money in the offering plate or send a check to a missionary or teach in a Sunday school class. We are sharing in gospel work, partnering in the gospel, putting, putting our resources in the same direction as our hearts and in the same direction as God's heart for the world. Number three, we give ultimately because it's good for us. We give ultimately because it's good for our hearts and souls in Christ Jesus. Look at what Paul says about the result of this sacrificial partnership of the Philippians in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul, like he has before in the letter in his discussion of counting everything as loss compared to knowing Christ, is again using some financial language here. What is he so excited about as the Philippians partner with him? It's not even so much that they're helping him. What does he seek? He seeks the profit that accrues to their account. He's after the spiritual benefit that their giving of money will have in their lives and hearts. Paul's making a bold statement here. He's saying that when these believers give generously, when they share in the cause of the gospel through their partnership, their spiritual growth explodes. So as we consider the way we give today, the way we give of our time, our money, our resources, our energy, we do so because we want the honor of sharing in the work of the gospel. But we also do it for the good of our own hearts and souls because we want to go deeper in Jesus, because we want to love our Lord more. It wasn't until a few years out of college when I was serving at Holy Trinity Church in the city that I began to get this as a single guy, that my giving was part of my worship, that my money and my time were not disconnected from my walk with Jesus and my growth in Him, but they were actually intricately connected. They were linked together. And as I learned to give, I grew. And as my wife and I now seek to give, not perfectly, but but seeking to grow in that area, we move forward together in Jesus as we do that. We give because it's good for our souls. Number four, we give sacrificially. We give as a sacrifice to God. Look down with me at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's possible to give poorly, even with sinful attitudes and thoughts as we do a good action. We need look no further than the account of Ananias and Sapphira, right, to remember that even great giving can be done sinfully. But when it is done right, 
partnership, sharing, giving can be a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Paul is actually borrowing language here from the Old Testament sacrificial system, literally saying that costly gospel sharing or partnership can be a pleasing aroma to God, like burnt offerings were said to be in the Old Testament. While God's people are obviously no longer called to offer up bulls and goats and sheep, we are still called to costly sacrifice for God. Gospel people, in other words, spend themselves and their resources for the sake of their God. Now, the beautiful thing about this call to sacrifice, to sacrificial giving, is that we are sacrificing tangible things for the sake of the one who made the greatest sacrifice for us. In other words, the greatest sacrifice was one that we didn't have to make. Jesus Christ laid down his life in our place as our substitute for our sins on the cross. The right response to that all throughout Scripture for God's people is to lay down ourselves, our lives, everything as we follow the one who made the great sacrifice for our souls. A sacrifice that by God's grace we don't have to make ourselves. Number five, fifth and finally, we give knowing that true riches are in Jesus. We give knowing that true riches are in Jesus. Jesus. Look at 19 and 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Paul's used the word need once before in this passage, remember? He said that he is not in need. Now, in case there was any mistake, he reminds the Philippians about their true needs as it relates to their sacrificial giving and partnership. Now think for a moment with me on this point. Why do we sometimes not give? Or at least why are we sometimes tempted not to give sacrificially of our money, our time, or our energy? I'll tell you why it is for me. It's because I'm scared to death that if I give sacrificially in those areas, my needs won't get met. That if I really stretch myself, I may put myself in a tough financial situation or I may end up utterly exhausted by the energy I spend. Now, there's obviously prudential wisdom to be had as we give, and I'm not arguing against that. But Paul is clarifying true need here, and it's not the need for nine hours of sleep or a hefty savings account. It's spiritual. It is, again, anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. What you really need, Paul says, can only be supplied by Jesus. He'll take care of your needs. He alone brings contentment. You're after, remember, the kind of riches that only he can give, the kind of riches that only your Savior can ultimately supply. So how do we give as gospel people? We give knowing that God's work doesn't depend on us. We give because we want to partner in the gospel work that is going on in this world. We give because it's good for our souls and connected to our growth in Christ. We give because God's people have always been called to offer sacrificial lives in response to the great sacrifice made for us. And we give understanding that our deepest and truest needs are ultimately met 
only in the riches of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's why we give as gospel people. And so we come to the end of the book of Philippians and to the end of our series this summer. It's been a great time in this rich book. Paul wraps up his letter to this church with these final greetings. Look at 21 to 23, the concluding verses. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, before we move too quickly to dismiss this, just as a formulaic final greeting to an ancient letter, just think with me on one very intentional thing that Paul does here in these final verses. As he closes this letter, he's giving a big hint at what the Philippians' gospel partnership is helping to accomplish. He specifically says, notice, that he sends greetings from Caesar's household. In other words, from Roman people, who some of them perhaps have even had a hand in guarding him during his imprisonment. He's calling their attention in a a kind of subtle way to the work of the gospel that is continuing even during his time in jail. And he's mentioned this before back in chapter 1, hasn't he? He's saying, Philippians, you're sustaining me with this gift, but the gospel is still moving forward. You're still partnering in the work of the gospel. Jesus is changing Roman lives right now, and you're sharing in that. That's how Paul leaves them as he wraps up this letter. So when you come back to Philippians, when you come back to this book, maybe in a few months or maybe in a year, in your Bible study or in your personal devotions, you should at least remember this about it. It's a letter about gospel partnership. It's a letter about the joyful unity that comes when we really share with one another in the work of Jesus Christ in making his gospel known. And that's the kind of relationship we want to be giving ourselves to right here at College Church in this congregation in the years to come. Not different individuals doing disconnected things in all different directions, but a group of believers joyfully partnering, unified in the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have called us to share in your work in this world. We pray that that would lead us to joyful sharing, joyful partnership with your people. And Lord, as we make sacrifices for you for the sake of the gospel, would you remind us with joy that we serve a king, we serve a savior who made the most costly sacrifice for us. We praise you for that, and we want to follow you with our lives. Amen.